Um, I've asked Alex to read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 19, we'll begin by reading verses 7 through 11. Alex, whenever you get ready. Thanks, Alex. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and we are grateful that you are a God of truth. We are grateful that you meet us at our need. Lord, that you've given us your word by which we might be saved. And I pray, Lord, that as we begin this new series, you would help us to understand how we approach your word. Help us understand how we come to understand the truth that you've given to mankind. Pray that you would bless this morning, Lord. I pray that you would give me a deeper hunger for your word and a deeper hunger for obedience to your word. Lord, that, that I would find your word more sweeter than honey. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I read of, a, of an unmarried couple, college couple, um, living together who were both Christians or claimed to be Christians, um, a pastor confronted this couple with God's Word, brought them to God's Word, showed them what God's Word says about purity, about, um, about marriage, uh, to which the couple responded, well, that's your interpretation. Um, that seems to be a predominant sentiment today. Um, so the question is, is it just your interpretation is the Bible true? Does it communicate truth and can it be understood? Or is it something that we all come to and we get different things out of? Um, the last series that we did in Systematic Theology, we studied God's revelation. The basic premise of that whole series was that God is a God of truth and by necessity, if he is a God of truth, he reveals that truth to us, and that is what we have in the Bible. So if God is a God of truth and he reveals this truth to us, then it stands to reason that we can understand this truth, that God is not a God of confusion. He's not arbitrary. Um, how miserable would that be to have an authority and it be arbitrary or, un under or not understandable? Um, and so the kind of that's the premise we're working from. We saw last time that God's word is our authority. We saw that it's clear that God communicates in a way that we can understand. Um, and the passage that we read this morning, one of the verses says, and it's the very first one, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The understanding there is that even the simple can understand God's word. Um, so, yeah, basically the question we're going to attempt to answer this series is, uh, does the Bible teach something in particular or is the meaning basically up to us or what we get out of it? Um, it, it? If, in fact, we are to believe God's word, there must be something to believe. 
if it communicates truth, there must be something um, that for us to understand. Yes. Uh, there should be, maybe we ran out. Yeah. Thanks, Calvin. They need some more in the back, Calvin. Raise your hand if you didn't get an outline. How did you not get one? <laughs> okay, so well, I'll keep going because I haven't really gotten to the outline part yet. Um, the question we're answering is, does the Bible teach something that can be understood? And obviously the answer is yes, but the way we get to that answer is what's called hermeneutics. Um, and before I get into, I'm going to give you a definition of hermeneutics, just because I think it's helpful. I want to read you a, um, a uh, make-believe dialogue that happens at a um, make-believe Bible study on a college campus. Um, this is very creative. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. Uh, this is um, from uh, a, an author or theologian named uh, Vern Poitras, uh, sorry. And the book is entitled "Toward a God-Centered um, Toward a God-Centered Interpretation." And uh, so it starts off again. It's a Bible study at on a college campus, and I can just imagine this taking place somewhere on a college campus today. Libby Liberal says, well, we've, uh, we'd better begin. The passage for today is Luke 4, 31 through 37. Norma, would you read for us? Norma, narratologist, says, sure. It says, then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began teaching the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread through the surrounding area. Libby Liberal responds, Now let's discuss... What is your reaction? Natalie Naturalist says, It shows what I've always suspected. The Bible comes from primitive superstitious times. People attributed natural phenomena like mental illness to demons and occult forces. They used God and the supernatural to allay their fears. Then science came along and gave us the true explanation of how the world works. I would guess that Jesus had some kind of personal influence that helped those who were mentally ill, and then people exaggerated it into a story about an evil spirit. Libby Liberal says, isn't Jesus concerned for the mentally ill inspiring? Carol Critical Method says, it is still illuminating to apply modern historical methods to ancient documents. I've been doing some research. We can establish that this story was once transmitted as an oral tale during the period of the early church. It belongs to the category miracle story and the subcategory exorcism. The early church used it to reinforce the claim that Jesus had divine power and to confirm the authority of its teaching, which it claimed was derived from the master. But as people passed on the story, they introduced changes and embellishments over time. There is probably some historical core to the story, but it is typical of the genre that would be impossible to be dogmatic. We really don't know what happened. 
theotherapist pipes up. Sure, the culture back then was different, but what, it, but what is the same is the need for self-esteem. This guy, described as demon-possessed, must have had a low self-esteem. Uh, he was kind of weird, and so everybody despised him and called him names. They began to say that he was demon-possessed. This accusation only made him worse because of the power of suggestion. He began to believe, him, uh, believe it himself and acted more and more in the way other people expected a demon-possessed man to act. Jesus broke the power of the psychic dysfunction by affirming him. Jesus distinct, uh, distinguished himself, I'm sorry, Jesus distinguished between the man himself and the picture of low self-esteem that others had imposed, symbolized by the demonic voice. Then Roland Relativist speaks up. This discussion is a perfect illustration of the need for everyone to react to ideas in his or her own way. Each one of us has different ideas about this text. Each person sees the text against a different background of previous views and experiences. So the ideas are inevitably different. Sometimes our ideas are even opposite to each other's. How much richer are we for appreciating everyone's point of view? We can all benefit from the Bible or from any other book by letting it stimulate our ideas. Each of us must discover what is true for you, what works for you, is true for you. Then Dick the Constructionist pipes up. Roland People's reactions differ because language is always fluid, flexible, and inherently ambiguous. No one can affix a meaning once for all to this passage, no, and no meaning, even if it could be fixed, could be passed on to someone else without changing it. Libby, Lib Libby Liberal, again, oh my, our time is already up. We haven't had time to hear from uh, Olivia Occultist, Norma Narratologist, Faye Feminist, or Susan Sociologist. Let's continue this discussion next week, Susan Sociologist says. I'd like to hear from Chris Christian, too. Can we get him to come? Well, Libby Liberal says, to tell you the truth, I didn't invite him. He's so um, narrow, you know. He actually believes that the Bible is literally God's word and completely true. This is kind of a humorous way of pointing out that there are so many different approaches to the Bible today. And we are influenced by these hermeneutical approaches. And so what we're going to attempt to do is figure out how do we approach God's word? What are, or how have we been influenced in ways, what do we bring, the, I guess, the baggage that we've been taught, what do we bring to the text, and how can we understand God's word more clearly? Um, so let's begin with a couple of definitions that I think are, are helpful, maybe not, um, because I, I, when I was looking through my notes this morning, I realized that I interchange these words quite a bit. Hermeneutics is the study, that's the first number one, hermeneutics is the study of the interpretation of written texts. And so what we're looking at would be called biblical hermeneutics. It's the actual study of interpretation. And then the second one is exegesis, is the, is the interpretation of a written text. So you have biblical hermeneutics, which is a study of biblical exegesis. But people often, and I interchange the words pretty freely, so, um, so they're very close in meaning. Hermeneutics basically is the study of exegesis. Um, so this is basically how the six weeks is going to go. Um, as you heard in the sermon, this, or if you heard from Dan this morning, um, Wayne Mack will be here next Sunday. 
um, but then we'll pick right up after that, which is a pretty nice break because um, this week I'm just going to give you a historical overview of biblical hermeneutics. Um, and then after Wayne Mack, we'll talk about what is the orthodox hermeneutic or exegetical approach to the Bible. Um, and then we'll go into, after that, it'll get very practical. So stay with me the first couple weeks. It'll be a little bit theoretical. Um, I've, my point in this is not for this to be a seminary class, because if it were, I wouldn't be teaching it. Um, it is going to be very practical, um, and we will apply the things we're learning at the, on the, the last three weeks. So stay with me the first two weeks. Actually, the last four weeks we'll be applying. Okay, so early church. And it's helpful, I think, to do a history of biblical hermeneutics because there's nothing new under the sun. We're going to see that the things that you see throughout church history, the ways people have approached the Bible, is, people are still approaching it that same way today. Um, and so um, let, let's look at this because I think this is very helpful. Okay, the early church, two key people, um, Irenaeus and Origen. Origen probably the mo- more key person as far as hermeneutics goes, but... Irenaeus or Irenaeus, I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced. Somebody can correct me if you know. Please do. Um, He basically contributed two things that will be important later on. Um, One good and one not so good. The first one, he suggested that obscure passages should be interpreted by clear ones. Obscure passages should be interpreted by clear ones which is a good thing. Because when we say the Bible is clear, that doesn't mean that every passage is as easy to understand as, as all the others. Sometimes, we looked at last time we were talking about Revelation. Peter even recognizes there are some things in Paul that's difficult to understand. So there are passages that are difficult. Um, however, we don't use, we don't build doctrine on passages that are less clear. We use clear passages to interpret passages that are less clear. And so that's the principle, uh, number the first one there. Obscure passages should be interpreted by clear ones. And then he also introduced the idea of authoritative exegesis. Authoritative exegesis. This is important, um, especially for the early church, uh, and you'll understand this more when I get to origin, um, because there were so many competing um, interpretations of the Bible that they had to have, when combating heresy, they had to have some type of an an authoritative interpretation. So he suggested that there is an authoritative exegesis or interpretation of the Bible. And then let's move to Origen. He's the first, number one under Origen, he's the first to formulate principles of biblical interpretation. He was the first one to actually formulate some principles. How do we interpret the Bible? I'm not going to go into all of these um, just because I figured y'all probably don't really care. I'm just kind of giving you an an overview of the thought throughout church history. Um, But he's most important because he he argues for an allegorical interpretation of the Bible, and, and this allegorical interpretation of the Bible really sets the tone through up until the Reformation, through the Middle Ages. So he's, very, he's a very key figure. Um, allegory comes from, the, from classical rhetoric and literary means saying one thing to mean another. Um, now, 
I'll, I'll define allegory as I go along, but allegory basically means that you take a passage and that passage has a deeper hidden meaning. Um, and it's, it's very, especially for the early church and even more in the Middle Ages, this is more of an esoteric kind of, only a certain few people can understand this deeper meaning, um, which is why you see the Catholic Church resisting Luther's um, putting the Bible in the common language. Because you have this authoritative exegesis, and the need for the authoritative exegesis is because if you take this allegorical approach to the Bible, the Bible can really be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And so, um, but he, um, Origen argues for an allegorical interpretation, um, and I'll give you an example. If you will, turn to Psalm 137. So I'm sure you're all wondering, what does this allegory mean? Psalm 137, we'll look specifically at verses 8 and 9. Sorry, I'm, I'm finding the need now to, to adjust to having reading glasses, but it's weird to look at y'all with the reading glasses on, so... Um, verse 8 says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Um, not a very encouraging, I wonder what Libby Liberal would say about that. Um, so Origen takes this passage and this is how he interpret, interprets it allegorically. Um, he says, the infants of Babylon... Babylon meaning confusion are the confused thoughts caused by evil which have just been implanted and are growing up in the soul. The man who takes hold of them so that he breaks their heads by firmness and solidity of the word is dashing the infants of Babylon against the rock. That is an allegorical interpretation of this passage. So for origin, allegory basically means that any passage has a symbolic or a deeper meaning. And that's, that'll, that's important because by the end of this, I'm sure you're going to have some questions. Um, Origen, however, did not disregard the literal interpretation, but the literal interpretation was not as important as the allegorical interpretation. Um, okay, so then we move to, and I, okay, I'm, I'm giving you an overview. A lot of things are happening, and I'm, and I'm summarizing everything, so just... Just bear with me, but a lot of things happen between Origen and Thomas Aquinas, which is basically the Middle Ages. However, um, these are the key ideas, and it stays pretty consistent from Origen through the Middle Ages. And there are some competing ideas about hermeneutics. I'm not suggesting that you had this one approach, but this was the dominant approach in the church. Um, the Middle Ages, um, the major representative of hermeneutics is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is a huge figure. And so what I'm going to elaborate under the Middle Ages is basically Aquinas' thought on hermeneutics. Um, Aquinas suggested that back to um, Irenaeus, he suggested the idea of the, hermen of the authoritative exegesis. Well, Aquinas now argues that the authoritative exegesis is the Catholic Church. Okay? He's arguing that the Catholic Church is the, are those who are in, in charge of the Catholic Church give the authoritative exegesis. 
So you guys who have been sitting in Matt's uh, church history, some things are probably making some sense now. Um, If the church is the authoritative exegesis, you have, again, it's going to argue against putting the Bible in the language of the common person. Because number one, they're not equipped to interpret the Bible allegorically, and if they even tried, they wouldn't get it right. And so allegory opens the Bible up to a, a lot of different types of interpretations. What Aquinas is trying to do is say, this is the right interpretation, and the way you know this is the right interpretation is because this is what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, Aquinas held to a fourfold hermeneutical method, which many people refer to as the allegorical method. And I'm going to do that. From now on, when I say the allegorical method, I'm talking about this fourfold method, even though one of the, met- one of the fourfold um, interpretations is called allegory. Okay, so uh, this fourfold hermeneutical method was proposed in the fifth century, and it gained steam, but Aquinas definitely held to this and taught it, and basically it goes like this. Every text has four meanings, four levels of meanings. First, there's the historical, and this would be the literal interpretation. Secondly, there's the spiritual, and this would be like a moral application about the Christian life. So, Again, you come to any passage in in Scripture, and it has four levels of meaning. You have the literal or the historical. You have the spiritual, which would be a moral application, how we should live our lives. Then you have the allegorical interpretation. I know it gets a little bit confusing, but the allegorical aspect of the fourfold method, basically every passage has a reference to Christ in some way. And then the, the lastly, anagogical or just put eschatological or future things. Just write future things. Every passage has a prophetic meaning. So you're reading through Genesis 3 and you are, as a Catholic theologian in the Middle Ages, looking for four levels of meaning. Historical, the spiritual or the moral, the allegorical, how does it relate to Christ, and then the future. What does this say about the, the church and you individually in the future when you are in heaven? Or you can think of it as the church triumphant when the church goes to heaven, when Christ returns. Um, this may seem foreign to us. Probably, hopefully it seems foreign to us. Um, but people still approach the Bible this way. In fact, um, I found one man on the Internet, um, a pastor, who, uh, and if you would, you might want to turn here because Deuteronomy 22.10, he interprets Deuteronomy 22.10 allegorically. Well, you know, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but 22.10 basically is, is a commandment which forbids people to plow with an ox and a donkey. Okay, so this in this in this twenty two ten, you know Deuteronomy is the law, and you're forbidden as an Israelite to plow with an ox and a donkey. So um, this man suggests again argues this verse has a deeper level of meaning, um, 
and he says that this verse teaches that we are saved by Christ alone and not by works. True, we are saved by Christ alone and not by works. I don't think that's what that passage is teaching, though. Um, and this is how he gets there. Um, he writes, we have scriptural, and I couldn't really figure that one out, but he says we have scriptural validation to believe that the ox represents Christ and the donkey represents the one who needs salvation. We are not yoked to him as though we are working with him to accomplish our salvation. He goes on to argue, furthermore, he carries the idea of the donkey being the lost person throughout the, the whole Bible. He argues that the donkey Christ rode into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry represents the unsaved people he came to save. So this is an allegorical, founded on the internet, this guy's alive. You'd know who he was if I told you. Um, Okay, so that basically is the Middle Ages. When you think Middle Ages and interpretation, you think the fourfold allegorical method of interpretation. Okay, let's get to the Reformation at last. One of the key watchwords of the Reformation is students, Matt students. I'll have to get one. One of the no, 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 key watchwords. It's the solas. What one of the key solas? Sola Scriptura. That was one of the foundational ones for the Reformation. Sola Scripture, scripture which means Scripture alone. The, the Reformers used the principle of Sola Scriptura or Scripture alone to build a hermeneutical method. They rejected, to a large extent, some more consistently than others, the allegorical interpretation of the allegorical method. Um, scripture alone, this is your first one. Scripture alone meant that the historical sense is the true sense. That's number one. The historical sense is the true sense, or A, under the Reformation. Luther said that only the historical sense gives the true and sound doctrine. He also said that the Holy Spirit is the plainest writer and speaker in heaven and earth, and therefore his words cannot have more than one, and they are the very simplest sense, which we can call the literal, ordinary, natural sense. By the way, um, there's some confusion. A lot of people, if you say, I interpret the Bible literally, uh, what people today think you're saying is that you take the Bible in a very wooden, direct sense. But that's not at all historically what literal interpretation means. The Reformers, when they say literal interpretation, what they mean is you're interpreting the Bible according to its literary form. Okay, does that make sense? Literal, literary. Um, if, it's, if it's poetry, you interpret it according to the rules of poetry. If it's an epistle, you interpret it according to the rules of interpreting a letter. Okay, so it, if it's, if it's um, prophetic, you, you interpret it according to prophetic rules. That's what, when I say literal, that's what I mean, that's what the reformers mean. But if you use that term today, most people, that's not what they think you're talking about. So, um, so keep that in mind. And maybe that's not what you thought I was talking about. Um, Okay, so uh, uh, Milton comments, um, each passage of Scripture has only one sense. Though, the Old Testament, uh, though in the Old Testament, this sense is often a combination of the historical and the typological, which we'll get to later. 
No references should be made from the text unless they follow necessarily from what is in the text. So that's the difference between allegory and the historical method of interpreting the Bible. Um, And it doesn't mean, again, um, and I think Milton's exactly right, each passage of Scripture has only a single sense, though in the Old Testament this sense is often a combination of the historical and the typological. And, And there's a difference between a typological interpretation and an allegorical interpretation. I think this important. This distinction is important. Although um, the Middle Ages, if you talk to Thomas Aquinas, he would see typological, and I'll explain that in just a minute for those who don't know what that means, typological interpretation as being under the allegorical. But there's a difference in the Reformers. They, they definitely saw typo, typology in the Old Testament. Typology basically is this. There are People, places, or things in the Old Testament that foretell or are fulfilled in a person, place, or thing in the New Testament. Okay? What are some types in the Old Testament? Not a trick question. Sacrificial lamb. What is the, now, what fulfills the type is called the antitype, not the antitype, the antitype. What would be the antitype for this sacrificial lamb? Christ's sacrifice, okay? The difference between allegory, allegory and typological is typological has a specific event that fulfills it. Allegory, it's open. It's like a symbol. Y'all see the difference? Because that's important. Allegory, like a tree, and its roots could mean a lot of different things. Type has a specific fulfillment in the New Testament. And, and, and it's fulfilled in one person. It's not multiple meanings. There's just one reference point. Um, okay, this Reformation idea of Luther's mainly turned the hermeneutic of the Middle Ages on its head. You can see why Luther was hated and despised by the Catholic Church. Um, okay, B. Sola Scripture also meant the rejection rejection of authoritative exegesis. The Reformers rejected the idea that the Catholic Church had a monopoly on interpretation. The Catholic Church up until this point was the official interpreter. Um, So you see in the Middle Ages, um, theologians didn't find it necessary to refer to a passage to make a point about a doctrine or prove a point. They could refer to an interpretation of the church, of the church fathers. Um, in fact, Luther, this was one of Luther's main frustrations when he debated Eck. Y'all remember Eck? Maybe, hopefully. Um, Luther kept saying, I asked for a scripture, and he gives me the church fathers. I asked for light, and he gives me a lantern. Um, Luther was frustrated by this. Show me in Scripture where you find these doctrines or where you find these teachings, and the Catholic theologians would just reference the church fathers because from the allegorical method and the authoritative exegesis, Scripture's not the authority. It is a authority, but more importantly, the authoritative exegesis, the interpretation of the Catholic church was the authority. Um, 
Luther rejected the fourfold method of interpretation. Um, he writes, when I was a monk, I allegorized everything. But after lecturing on the epistle of Romans, I came to have some knowledge of Christ. For therein I saw that Christ is not an allegory, and I learned to know what Christ actually was. Um, Luther saw the meaning in the Bible as simple and clear and accessible to the common person, which is why Luther wanted to translate the Bible into the common languages for everyone to interpret, because he believed that God wanted to communicate his truth and that everyone could, commu could understand the basic message of the Bible. Um, and then C, sola scriptura, also means that scripture is, it, is its own interpreter. Scripture is its own interpreter. Again, I'm not going to belabor this. Basically, there are passages that are more difficult to understand. Um, we have churches who believe different doctrines. Um, one of the ways we can resolve this is we take passages that are more unclear and we interpret them by clear passages. Um, and this is sometimes referred to as the analogy of faith. Okay, and then D, even though, um, okay, well, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not at D yet. Even though Luther um, railed against allegorical interpretation, he did indulge in it from time to time. Um, Calvin, on the other hand, I don't think he ever indulged in allegorical uh, interpretation. In fact, one person that I was reading said that Calvin out-Luthered Luther when it came to allegory. Um, Calvin was slow to find typological references to Christ in the Old Testament unless the New Testament gives specific warrant for it. Because um, you find, you read anyone in the Middle Ages and they're finding types everywhere. Calvin was like, you know, we need to be careful. Um, we need to have some kind of, of warrant for finding a type in the Old Testament. Um, in place of what is called allegorical, this is D. In place of what is called allegorical interpretation, the reformers relied on the historical or literal interpretation. Okay, post-Reformation. Um, in general, my notes. Yeah, you have this. In general, the spirit and rules developed during the Reformation became the guiding principles of all Protestant Orthodox interpretation up until today. There have been a couple of changes, or not really changes, a couple of, of putting more emphasis somewhere else, but basically what the Reformers developed as a hermeneutical approach to the Bible is still considered the Protestant Orthodox approach to the Bible. Um, one, one exception is in the 18th century, a man by the name of Ernesti, this is B. Um, Ernesti was a classical scholar, um, and he argued for a grammatical, or a, I, I hate to give you all these big words, or a philological approach to the Bible. Basically what he was saying is you have to take language and examine the language in context, and so he emphasized the grammatical approach to Scripture, and he, he argued that to all of his students that the grammatical approach is where you begin your Bible study. 
And so what we have today is called the historical grammatical approach to the Bible. Um, so that was one development of the 18th century. And I'm not by any means suggesting that reformers didn't do that. Ernesti was just the one who kind of emphasized this. Um, okay, so then in the 18th and 19th centuries, let me get to my notes, you have the beginnings of modern liberalism, Libby liberal. Um, you have in the wake of the Reformation and the Renaissance a rationalistic, okay, so the, the modern liberalism is a rationalistic approach to the interpretation of the Bible. Now, here's a question, and I know, and it's how long has it been since we did this, the last series? A year? I have a question. What is wrong with a rationalistic approach to the Bible? Based on what we learned last time. Yes, Alex. That's exactly right. It elevates reason to the level of ultimate authority. We sit in judgment of God's word. What's wrong with that? What happened in Genesis? Fall. What did the fall affect? Everything. Our reason. So the, the, the flaw of modernism is this. We can objectively come to anything. We have presuppositions that we bring to any passage. And that's the problem with a rationalistic approach. Modernism said we reason, pure reason, can approach anything objectively. Um, and, and the reality is that we are all affected by the fall, including our reason. Therefore, reason cannot sit in judgment of God's word. It is not the ultimate authority. But the rationalistic approach began in this 18th and 19th centuries. The rationalistic approach asserts that anything that does not harmonize with reason is to be rejected. Thomas Jefferson, anybody know what he did to the Bible? What did he do? He took out the miraculous, the supernatural. So the Jeffersonian Bible takes out all the, all the references to the supernatural events in the Gospels. That's a rationalistic approach to scriptures. Anything that does not line up with reason, anything that science... Now, you remember, who? what was her name? Uh, oh, what was the lady's name who, um, uh, was it naturalist? Oh, the naturalist, yeah, uh, Natalie Naturalist. Um, now we know. I mean, demon possession, he wasn't demon possessed. We know better now. That's a rationalistic approach. And so anything supernatural is done away with. Um, deism made ethics the essence of religion, and so you have the social gospel. Um, the emphasis of the Bible is not to interpret what God is saying to us. The emphasis of the Bible is to interpret how we should live. And Christ is merely an example of how we should live. Bernard Ram writes, whatever in the scriptural account does not measure up to these criteria is rejected. Scholarship claims that all books are to be treated as human documents and by the same methods, and by the same methods, and the Bible is no exception. Science presumes the regularity of nature, so mir miracles are not accepted. Doctrines of sin, depravity, and hell 
offend the liberals' moral sensitivity, so these doctrines are rejected. One liberal theologian writes, if we reject the miracles and the classics as violating our scientific good sense, then we must reject miracles in the scriptures. So you have a naturalistic approach to the Bible that began 17th, 18th century and is rampant today in liberal pretty much any seminary you go to, there are some exceptions, you're going to have a, more of a liberal, sometimes flat-out liberal approach to the Bible. Um, in recent years, we have seen a move away. You know, it's funny, the trends in the church seem to be 10, 20 years behind what's happening in, in secular universities. In recent years, you've seen a move away from meaning. I don't know if I have this in yours. Yeah, away from meaning being in the text. So meaning is no longer um, in the text. The meaning is what the text means to you. The meaning is in the reader, not in the text. Um, so that's the latest trend. Um, those of you with a literature background, that's reader response, basically, is what that's the that is what postmodern has led to the postmodern movement, which be, became popular in the United States in the '60s, now leads to the reader response. Meaning is not in the text, and who was it? Uh, oh, Dick Deconstructionist was uh, basically a reader response. No, 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 no. He wasn't. Um, Roland Relativist was the was the reader response guy. Okay, so. Last series, we saw the Bible is our only authority and that it's, it is understandable, it's clear. So how do we come to the Bible if, all, if, if the, what we've seen throughout church history gives us a glimpse of how the church has interpreted the Bible or approached the Bible? Um, what is the right way? Well, I've already kind of told you it's the historical grammatical, um, which if you come back next week, that's what we'll talk about. We'll explain the historical grammatical approach to the scriptures. The following week, we'll talk about genres because, remember, a literal interpretation of the Bible is interpreting the Bible according to its literary form or genre. And so we'll talk about some of the dominant genres in Scripture the third week. Actually, not next week. That's Wayne Mack. The week after that, we'll do the historical grammatical, then genres, and then we'll start applying where we'll actually start interpreting a book of the Bible. Um, if you have questions, I have a couple of minutes. Um, if you ask me a really hard question, I'm gonna—I'm not gonna answer it today because I don't—I don't want don't to speak out of ignorance. Um, so if you have something that—a question, feel free to email me. My email is really easy. It's DamonCup at att.net. If you have a question that you think I might want to think about, please email it to me. If you have one that's relatively easy, you can shoot it to me now. You, What's your category? <laughs> well, the last uh, one we were talking about moving away from the meaning being in the text. Yeah. Uh, those that embrace that, are, are they uh, categorizing things that are written that applies, or are they uh, sending out of all texts? All texts. <laughs> you should go sit in some graduate courses in philosophy or literature even better. Um, yeah, it's uh, basically the idea is that um, to assign meaning to a given word, um, you cannot do because 
words change, cultures change in how they interpret those words. Therefore, um, you're going to bring meaning to a passage when you read it. You're, there's no such thing as, as a text having meaning or truth in it. You bring everything to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because if, if that's the truth, well, that leads to um, that's your interpretation when you have a discussion over what the Bible says. I mean, that's, where, that's the ultimate end of that. That was a good, easy question. Anybody else have a question? Okay. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, once again, we are so grateful um, that you are a God of truth. And, Lord, we thank you that you don't play games with us. You don't try to hide your truth from us. Lord, our problem is our sin. We can't understand your word because we refuse to obey it. Lord, I pray that you would give us humble hearts before your word. I pray that you would help us to eagerly seek your word. And I pray that you would help us to deal with the sin that prevents us from understanding. We thank you for this time together. May you be glorified in what we've learned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.